welcome to Making Sense of Tech Law with me, Andrew Lane. So we hear a lot about legal technology in corporate and commercial contexts, but to broaden that discussion a little bit, I wanted to highlight a slightly different application today, and that's the application of legal technology to pro bono legal services. A use case I wanted to bring up, if you like, is a story I heard recently about the use of legal technology to help lawyers assist asylum seekers on the Greek islands of Lesbos and Samos. And it was really interesting as I read up a little bit about it. It helped me understand legal tech's potential not just as a force for efficiency, but actually as a force for good in the legal sector in increasing those things that we all value, such as the rule of law, such as access to justice. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Phil Worthington, Managing Director of European Lawyers in Lesvos, as we talk about this this very topic and how legal technology has helped them provide pro bono legal assistance to the thousands of asylum seekers who are fleeing to Europe every year. If you do, please feel free to share this podcast and subscribe. So Phil, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us on making sense of tech law. I guess the first thing I wanted to establish for our listeners is what's the sort of status of Moria at the moment and the status of your work? Yeah, well, um, thank you very much for the invitation to to speak um, this morning. In terms of the current situation, so as people probably know, on Lesbos, there was the the camp, Moria camp, um, which for the last five years or so was, um, was the main place where refugees were living on the Greek Aegean islands. And last September, the camp burned down and was completely destroyed. Since then, there has been a new temporary camp established on Lesbos, not far from the original camp. Currently, there are about 10,000 refugees on Lesbos, about 7,500 of whom are in the, the new camp, so-called Moria 2.0. The situation, there are fewer people on the island now than there were this time last year, for example. There have been more transfers of people to the Greek mainland. However, the conditions on the island remain very, very poor. So of the people in the new camp, there's a lack of electricity, there's very few hot showers, very little in the way of toilets. All of the accommodation is tents, not shipping containers, as was the case for some people in the previous camp. Even on the Greek islands, the weather in winter can be, can be very cold, windy, rainy, and the camp can easily get flooded. So um, the new camp is supposed to be a temporary camp with another new camp, a closed camp, being built on Lesbos by September 2021. So the conditions and the situation remains very challenging for us as well as an organisation. We provide free legal assistance to refugees on Lesbos and Samos. Um, and basically, we, we have a team of full-time Greek asylum lawyers who work closely with volunteer European asylum lawyers, basically to provide free legal assistance, primarily to help people prepare for their asylum interview, but also to assist people with family reunification and also unaccompanied children, particularly with family reunification and age assessment issues. So obviously over the past year, we've had various challenges in our work. The coronavirus, of course, as for everybody else, has provided some significant challenges, but we've been able to continue working on the islands over the past 12 months, and we continue to provide assistance in, in what is quite a challenging situation uh, right now in terms of the asylum procedure, for example, that is happening very, very quickly. So there is a, an emphasis 
on speed, which means that, for example, asylum seekers um, on Lesbos and Samos often get their interview with only a couple of days notice, sometimes even less than 24 hours notice. So it's quite normal for somebody to be told at two o'clock in the afternoon that their interview is at 7am the next morning. Obviously, this creates significant challenges for us in terms of providing legal assistance. We have to be very flexible and be available to do emergency preparations. But fundamentally, our aim is to ensure that everybody or as many people as possible have access to a lawyer before their interview. We're a rule of law organisation and that we believe that access to legal assistance, access to a lawyer is a fundamental right, particularly in a situation like on the Greek islands, whereby refugees are going through what is fundamentally a legal procedure. And I think this is a very important point. I think often maybe not realised that the asylum procedure is a legal procedure, just in, in the same way that any normal legal procedure that people may go through, you would have a lawyer. You know, if, you were, if you were buying a house, you would have a lawyer. And we believe that everybody should be able to have a lawyer for, for any legal procedure, but particularly something like the asylum procedure, which for some people um, could potentially be a matter of life and death as to whether they're returned back from Greece. And so having a lawyer is of absolutely fundamental importance to protect people's rights in that situation. And so for our listeners, would you be able to briefly outline what kind of process they'd go through when yeah, they arrive? Absolutely. There are various quite complicated steps. There's an initial registration with the police effectively that happens right on day one, and then further registration with the asylum service sometime later, which at which point people become asylum seekers. The key point in the legal procedure is the interview. So in Greece, everybody who applies for asylum has an asylum interview. The key thing about that, though, is that it is the only interview that people have. It is the only opportunity that people have to articulate their case. It's the only in-person interaction they have with the asylum service. Any, any subsequent appeals or, or, or judicial applications are always done on the papers. So this interview is the moment at which people can articulate their case and it's obviously therefore of a fundamental importance even if a case ended up at the european court of justice it would still to a certain extent depend and go back to what was said in that original initial interview so this moment this interview is of critical importance and one of the many challenges is that there is a lack of legal information given to refugees uh, before this interview so often there is a misunderstanding, a lack of awareness as to what exactly the interview involves, what the process involves. It's often not known or people are not fully aware that this is a legal procedure with specific criteria that need to be met rather than a purely administrative procedure. So one of the fundamental things that we do is to try and provide that legal information, help people understand what the process is, what steps they'll go through. Uh, what the criteria are, what kind of questions they'll be asked, and then to provide them legal assistance, legal advice about their individual case so that when they go to their interview, um, in which they will be asked to articulate quite comprehensively why they fled their country of origin and why they're not able to safely return to their country of origin, people are ready and prepared for that process. And maybe people might think, well, why would we need a lawyer for that. We just go and just say what happened. Of course, it's not as simple as that for many, many reasons. Often people are talking about events that happened some months or, or even some years ago, often which are extremely traumatic and difficult to talk about. Maybe they've 
never actually even spoken about it before. So as we ask very precise questions, asking for precise details, need some thinking about some preparation, but more significantly as well, people need to be able to properly articulate their case, need to understand what the process is and what the, what the criteria are. I often think that if I was suddenly arrived in Kabul and was told that I was going through a, a legal procedure and I had to do certain things, but all the information was in diary, there was nobody to help me understand the process, then of course, I wouldn't know what to do in the process and I wouldn't be able to actually properly set out my case. And I think the situation is absolutely the same. In order to follow a process and put forward your case, you need to understand what the process involves and what the criteria are. So it's not as simple as just going and explaining what happened. So what I wanted to address then is that knowledge gap. What kind of tools are you using to address that? Yeah, so we use a variety of different tools and different mechanisms. I suppose this is a combination of in-person, maybe more traditional tools. And then we are also trying to use more and more various legal tech solutions too. So primarily we provide one-on-one consultations. That's the main body of work that we do. So that would be a two or three hour one-on-one confidential consultation between a refugee and one of our asylum lawyers in which we would go through the whole process, explain all the steps, explain the criteria and provide advice. We aim to do a minimum of two of those preparations for each case. Many cases have more than two, but we aim for two as a minimum. In addition, we've written legal information materials that we disseminate. In the pre-corona times, we would used to do group legal information sessions, which sadly, for obvious reasons, are not possible at the moment. We also have a possibility for people to come to our office as drop-ins and to ask Q&A questions whenever they have a question, as well as being able to communicate with us through the duty phone. The other thing that we have we have considered and is kind of part of the various possibilities and ideas relating to the use of legal tech is to try and provide a mechanism to disseminate information online because obviously that is maybe another means for people to be able to access legal information and and this is something that is the ultimate goal of the work that we do with the legal tech companies in this regard. And what kind of partners in legal tech are you currently Yeah, so we have two main partners who work together, which is a really fantastic and and we're extremely indebted to their assistance and all the time and resources and assistance they've given us. So about 18 months ago, we started a collaboration with Brighter, who are a legal tech firm who basically have a a platform that is focused on automated decision making and the process of helping improve the efficiency and effectiveness of, of decision making. I would say that actually their platform is so much more than that and working with them found so many really innovative and interesting ways of, of using their platform. The other company we work with is HiQ. HiQ basically provide the space that interacts with the writer software. Maybe I should explain that in concrete terms rather than theoretical terms because it may make more sense. Basically all of our processes are done by Brighter. So for example, when we register a case, we collect certain information, which then feeds into a database. The process of collecting the information, of inputting the information and of that flowing through is done by the Brighter tool. And then the database is on the HiQ platform. So the two elements talk to each other and are integrated. The same goes for our case management. Our case management tools are seated on both Brighter and HiQ. The 
the, the daily updates, for example, that we do every day on each case is done through the Brighter tool. And then that flows through to the integrated HiQ database, where there's various different ways of being able to analyze and review the information. So just to explain maybe what this means to us, basically before these collaborations, we would do everything by hand effectively in the sense that when we would register a case, we would do it on a piece of paper and then we would type that up into a spreadsheet, which obviously is extremely labor intensive and absolutely inefficient. Similarly for the daily updates, they would be written in email form and then copy and pasted into a database. Now, obviously that again was a huge time drain and was always at risk of human error and inaccuracy issues with the database. Now that we do it through these two tools that integrate with each other, it has really transformed how we work in terms of efficiency and effectiveness, as well, of course, as in terms of personal data, because it's, a, it's now a closed data loop in terms of confidentiality, because everything is within this enclosed data loop and is all much safer and much, much better protected now. And obviously, for both from an organizational perspective to, to ensure that we are able to work as effectively and efficiently as possible, this is very important. And generally, in terms of confidentiality and personal data, clearly, it's a very critical matter, particularly for asylum seekers and refugees whose cases contain traumatic information or information relating to traumatic events and information that could actually put people at risk. So we've all always put great emphasis on that critical importance of, of confidentiality and protecting personal data. And this is another tool to, to further protect that. So I get the sense that your use of legal technology is really about freeing up time to focus on the real lawyering, if you like, the one-on-one -on -one consultations, the delivery of advice, the building of a, of a case for your client. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And and for us, that is of critical importance. I would say it probably frees up one full staff member per day. That element of the data entry and the data management, the manual task would probably take up one full staff member's time. So clearly that is a huge improvement from our side. What I think is particularly interesting in this regard in relation to legal tech is that we as an organization, me as an individual, were maybe slightly skeptical of legal tech in relation to how it could assist our work at the beginning of, of the collaboration, so 18 months ago, I think it's fair to say we were quite skeptical because we thought, how could legal tech help with a process that is so dependent on personal interaction? It's so dependent on the personal consultation between the lawyer and the refugee, because obviously the case is individual to the refugee. And so it's not something that can be so easily automated in the sense that not specific criteria that you either fulfill or you don't fulfill. It's, it's very much case dependent. But I think it's fair to say that we are now all absolutely zealous converts of the idea of using legal tech because we've realized all the different ways in which it can be used, which yeah, I'll admit I didn't know and I didn't appreciate until we started the collaboration with Brighter and then it's been further expanded with collaboration with IQ. And I suppose it's made us realize that legal tech is an extremely flexible tool. We use it in every element of every step of the case and, and the work we do. And I think we're only scratching the surface. I think there are many other ways in which it can be used in a more outward facing way to actually enable refugees to get more information in a relevant and tailored way using legal tech tools. And, and this is something that we really would like to explore. And because anything that helps bridge 
that knowledge gap is of absolutely fundamental importance to, to upholding the rule of law. And with so many asylum seekers and refugees on the island and with so few lawyers, there's only at most between 20 and 25 lawyers on Lesbos. It's very, very challenging. Every legal organization is beyond capacity. It's extremely difficult to be able to provide or offer legal assistance to every single asylum seeker given the current capacity of legal organizations. So any mechanism that can help bridge the knowledge gap and, and enable people to know their rights, that is a critical step in being able to enable people and empower people to uphold their rights and realize that the critical legal elements of the process and then that all moves towards enabling more people to access legal assistance and, and improving the quality of it. You were mentioning about how primarily the way you're using legal tech at the moment is lawyer facing. So what might it look like then for legal tech in your organization to be used in a more refugee facing kind of way? This is something whereby we are in the realms of thinking about it theoretically. We have some ideas and obviously the most important thing actually in this process is to speak to the communities themselves, to see what their needs are and how best legal tech can be used to address them. It's something that we can think about options, but of course, as with any kind of program design and any kind of tool, the key viewpoint should come from the refugees themselves. Having said that, thoughts that we've had will be towards providing a mechanism whereby people can access their refugee facing tool whereby it could provide specific tailored information to them rather than a legal information leaflet, which is very, very valuable, very, very important, but sets out everybody's rights, irrespective of country of origin or age or any other consideration. It's just a set of information. Whereas uh, we were thinking that uh, legal tech tools could be much more tailored. So for example, somebody could put in their nationality, maybe what area they come from, things like that. Obviously, this would all be absolutely private and confidential, but it would then provide information information about their procedure according to the information they put in because obviously procedures are different according to different situation also potentially that information relating to their rights and their case depending on the information they provide so it would be helping to provide tailored legal information that is specifically relevant to that individual and the aim of that would then be to provide that information and that would then streamline or smooth the process to then going seeing one of the lawyers because then it would then provide the information and encourage people to go and get individual tailored legal assistance according to that case. There are a number of legal tech initiatives that make use of decision trees, some even on, a, on an open source basis for contributors like students or other legal professionals to sort of collaboratively help help build build out decision trees and, and a knowledge base so that those who need access to information about things such as tenancies or uh, their rights in, in an arrest situation would have access to that data. Is that something that you think could be incorporated into a situation such as seeking asylum? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be something... Uh something similar because that's the, the key element of the brighter tool is the the decision trees which are right. um extremely um flexible and, and kind of powerful tools um i think the 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 thing is is that it's because asylum law depends on the um on the in specific individual case um it's it's difficult to um i suppose uh, completely automate it to to the point whereby um, it would um, like maybe maybe for example with 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 tenancy 
there is you know certain provisions that you either fulfill or you don't fulfill and they are set out kind of standard um in 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 the law um whereas the for for refugee law it always depends on the on the interview and the caseworkers um uh, perspective so i think legal tech can um be critical in uh providing the information and enabling people to understand their rights helping guide people towards resources for example that will be relevant and to to, to think about um processes and, and and think about um gathering evidence thinking about the kind of questions they may be asked um that then um effectively can save time in the consultation i don't think that it can replace a consultation um because that there are so many nuances that are case specific but can provide information um to then mean that the uh the consultation is is more effective um and is more um uh, and can be more efficient in that then if people have information about uh their case and about their rights when they come to the consultation then it means that um they are better prepared for the consultation and we also are able to um provide more effective um assistance right yeah so so legal tech is really for you about being able to focus your lawyer's attention on the kind of more personal aspects of the role the the one-on-one -on -one consultations and the kind of delivery of advice yeah i think that's absolutely right in every way we want to um i think legal tech helps us um be able to spend more time on the um on the consultations which is the you know that is where the difference that that is the, the where lawyers can make a difference fundamentally um because that kind of expert one-on-one uh, -on -one consultation is uh really um fundamental and, and of critical importance um and anything that can um mean that we can spend more time on consultations and less time on anything else um whether that is the manual data entry whether that is um you know providing uh, uh legal information that can be provided in a, in a in a different through a different mechanism then anything that helps us with that is um of of of, of great benefit to us and maybe just to contextualize a little bit in terms of why um i'm saying that the uh the legal consultations are of such importance i mean first of all of course from a purely um uh, uh from a rights perspective um we believe that access to meaningful access to legal assistance and, and, and access to a lawyer is, is fundamental in in, a, in any legal procedure um, and um that the only way that people can people's rights can be upheld is if people are um, aware of their rights and, and understand the process they're going through and um in maybe a kind of a, a more specific way um the of the cases that we've assisted over the past five years or so um of those people who have got their decision and, and informed us of their decision uh, on average 74.5 percent of people have received protection whereby the greek average is 46.5 percent so i think that illustrates that there is a there is a fundamental a meaningful difference um, between having a lawyer and not having a lawyer in terms of the outcome of the case. Phil, thank you so much um, for all your answers. And I'm sure it's given 
everyone so much food for thought. Me, me in particular, it's been so interesting to talk to you. Great. Thank you very much, Andrew, and thank you, everybody.